to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today I have an interview with director Brian Trenchard-Smith. He has directed such movies as The Man from Hong Kong, BMX Bandits, Turkey Shoot, Stunt Rock, and The Siege at Firebase Gloria. The Siege at Firebase Gloria will be shown Saturday, September 14, 2019, at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium. Now, on to the interview. You made a statement, I make wacky films, and you like to make what-if films, and I'm showing a movie you directed called The Siege at Firebase Gloria, and it's not a wacky film or a what-if film. Uh, What was your interest in making a movie about the Vietnam War? Well, I... I felt that there was another way to put the perspective of the war and of war in total. Wars are fought by brave young men and women on both sides who do as they are ordered to do by their political masters. And as a result, throughout history, people die. People are maimed and people are you know, psychologically traumatized for the, for the rest of their lives. So many anti-war films have been made I just wanted to put the Vietnam War in a slightly different perspective by giving the Viet Cong credit for what they were doing, which is what, yeah, as far as they were concerned, they were defending their homeland. So to tell a story of a battle to a degree from both sides was not something that had been done in Vietnam War films up to that point. So I thought I would like to do that. As far as my sort of innate wackiness is concerned, well, that's always alive and well, but I'm a multi-generic filmmaker. I like all kinds of films. I've liked Douglas melodramatic weepies from the the 50s and 60s. I I like spectacular epics and Hitchcock thrillers. My taste is, I'm an omnivore. And so when this script came along, I saw it had uh, considerable potential to let's say, sort of broaden the perspective on the Vietnam War and still give American troops credit for what they put up with and how they survived the Tet Offensive, which did take everyone by surprise. Uh, So this film was written by an Australian Vietnam veteran and another writing partner, and he had the year's tour of duty in Vietnam. And so these were all What basically made up the film was a whole lot of different anecdotes told to him by other servicemen there. And he put them together in the script, and I adapted it and expanded the part that Leo me plays. And I'm so glad. I love Lee. He's gone to God now. Um, But he is a a classic archetypal American and also a, a wonderful performer. He obviously was a performer when he was a sergeant major in the Marines. He brought a real authenticity to the part. And I encouraged him to do some improvisation. There's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole speech that he gives is one of his inventions. And the scene where he brings in the severed heads to show the troops what are the consequences of falling asleep while on guard duty Originally, the script just had shock at the sight of the severed heads on stakes where the gun emplacement used to be. I thought, yeah, we need you to triumph over this setback in some way. He said, well, I'll tell my troops the consequences of losing 
attention to their job. So in a black, dark, humorous way, that's exactly what he does by bringing the two heads with him to back up his argument. Does anyone know who these belong to? Uh, anyway, it was a great speech, and that was one of his other inventions. So, you know, that is a wide-ranging answer to <laughs> your specific question. Uh, is there anything you'd like me to clarify? Let me ask this question. On the audio commentary of your movie Turkey Shoot, you stated, I hope my expertise with battle scenes have improved. Takes a while to learn how to stage these things and keep them authentic. From Turkey Shoot to when you filmed Fireblaze Glory, could you discuss what lessons you learned in directing a battle scene on how to make them authentic? Well, Turkey Shoot was, let's say, made under very difficult circumstances budgetary shortfall. We didn't have the money, honestly, to do it properly. It was meant to have vastly more inmates. <laughs> we, we were meant to have modern-looking weapons, whereas you, know, you may notice that uh, Steve Railsback uses a World War II Schmeiser, I think, at one point. Anyway, battle scenes shot in a hurry inevitably lack the coverage that will give individual moments more impact. And also, a battle scene is much more effective if you're really bonded with the people who are fighting against impossible odds. While we bonded with the Steve Railsback character and obviously Olivia Hussey's character, there was in some way a bit of a disconnect. Olivia does well, but her handling of the big machine gun on the bulldozer that uh, they were riding on, it does look like she's not hitting. <laughs> she's aiming indiscriminately. I mean, it, it's not her fault. That's a battle scene that was sort of basically done in a day with a few other explosions that were created. Whereas Firebase, we were able to spend much more time and I had five individual battles. Well, the more you do it, the better you get at it. I guess it's the same in, in any profession. When it came time for me to do another battle scene in 1988 with Firebase and then another one with Sahara in 1995, um, have you seen Sahara? Yes, I have. All right. Okay. Well, that is a pretty well-organized battle scene, you know, the two major attacks. And I was able to organize in that case, and I had some resources with which to do it. I had 130 members of the Royal Australian Air Force at a nearby air base on their day off who participated as you know, members of the Africa Corps, assaulting the uh, the, the well. And uh, I had them for a day, so I did a lot of, you know, all the big stuff then. And then I had 80 soldiers on another day, 50 on another, and 25 on another. And by having, let's say, a pre-edited idea in my head as to what was being needed, I could break down my shots into what I would do on the big day, the middle day, the, the smaller days. Uh, so that's part of it. And it, having a good editorial sense, having a good sense of geography is important. I mean, geography in any action scene is important. You need to know the spatial relationships between the parties involved. So you have to remind the audience every now and again with a wider shot. I look at some action scenes these days that are just a sort of blizzard of fast-cut images, some long lenses compressing people together. And sometimes that works, but sometimes, well, it's better to go a bit wide and see something happening in its entirety in one shot. If you can make that impactful or gasp-worthy, 
So overall, the more you practice at it, the better you, you get. And I suppose I don't know. I go back to childhood when I built Meccano forts and had lots of toy soldiers assaulting them and defending them. And that those were my sort of childhood games alone in, in my room sometimes. That certainly, you know, I must have been drawn to military affairs. My father was an Air Force fighter pilot and had uh, been you know, shot down, gone to Stalagluft three dug tunnels for the great escape, didn't get out, luckily, under the because they shot 50 of them. And uh, military affairs always interested me. I guess from an early age, staging my own little battles as a you know, a kid, I shot my first one with an eight millimeter camera at my second school when I was 17. I got about 20 members of the cadet corps and we staged an attack on a trench line. And I shot I shot it on eight millimeter and you know people threw thunder flashes and fired blanks and it hey it looked good. Well, to my unpracticed eye at that time. Um, so I suppose that's an area where I guess got the foundations of my, my skills with battle. So I will draw your attention, obviously, to the, the wonderful battles on Game of Thrones, where the big battle in the week before last, was they took six weeks of night photography to shoot that. And normally an episode of television, it doesn't normally take more than two weeks. I mean, seven or eight days is your standard network television episode running 44 minutes. But Game of Thrones would shoot for any length of time it took to do it right. The Battle of the Bastards and the Battle of King's Landing, was those were exemplary battles where they just did it. They got all the shots that would make people riveted for the whole time. So what else can I tell you? Well, you said when in doubt, blow it up or set it on fire. <laughs> or at least set fire to it, yes. Well, while making Firebase Gloria, could you discuss your working relationship with Pyro Chief Danny Boom Boom Dominguez? Yeah, Danny was great. I mean, he worked on Hamburger Hill, too. And he said, actually, we let off more pyro than they did. And I suppose some skilled military man would say, yeah, that pyro is a little bit over the top. These exploding petrol clouds don't happen all the time. I mean, there are many different kinds of fragmentation explosives, and not all of them involve fire. So there is, I suppose, a little bit of lack of realism in the pyrotechnics, but they look good. And movies are not absolutely pure reality. Movies are a stylized form of reality. So pyrotechnics, they catch the eye. And also, fire is cheap. A man walking down a street with a gun in his hand past lots of parked cars is an interesting shot. But a man walking down the street with a gun in his hand past a couple of blazing cars is a more interesting shot. Obviously, there has to be dramatic motivation and you know, story motivation for those cars to be on fire. Sometimes I kind of reverse engineer <laughs> to achieve that. Okay. Firebase Gloria was filmed in the Philippines, and you were making a war movie in a war zone. What problems did that create, and how did you deal with it? Well, there were you know, some problems, but really we got along well with the New People's Army. One hour out of Manila, as we went to look at a potential location, as suggested by the Filipino production designer, who done a lot of this stuff, going out to Pagzanhan, one hour out, we pass a crossroads where there's a large guard tower with grenade nets over it. I thought, that's interesting. Hmm, wonder what... 
And they said, well, we're now entering NPA territory. We drove for another hour and then came to the proposed location at Pagzan Han and waited until a truck came up with two guys with bandanas over their faces and they were armed, but they left their arms, I think, in the car. And uh, my first assistant had a, was carrying a pistol, but uh, he always did. He and the production designer negotiated, sat away from me and negotiated with the local NPA as to what they would require to be paid to be our security guards, because who better to protect us from pillage of our set, which you know, we would have to build on that site, than the NPA themselves. And they were certainly better than the police or the army and people who would bring their cousins and demand they be paid. So we made a deal with the NPA for 5000 a month, and they dutifully made sure that nothing was stolen. And they offered to be in our battle scenes and bring their own rifles, but they had armor lights and we had required AK-47s for the Viet Cong. So everything was fine, really. They had one stipulation that if you bring in the army helicopters, you're probably going to, being a Vietnam War film, then you need to give us 24 hours notice so that we get out. We're nowhere near. And, and that'll please the army as well because they don't want to fight us unnecessarily. Uh, again, it comes back to politicians start the wars and ordinary people have to fight them. So on the day that the helicopters were to arrive, they didn't arrive at 9 a.m. They came around lunchtime because, as the captain uh, in charge told me, uh, we were 100 miles north bombing NPA positions. We will now change to blank ammunition. Excellent idea, I thought. I got, you know, I got quite a sense of the curious and convoluted politics of the Philippines at that time. I suppose you could say it was a little unsafe, but it just somehow I never really felt that way. But perhaps I just have always felt I lead a charmed life, and nothing's ever going to happen to me. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we'll see. But uh, no, the whole thing was a remarkable experience, and uh, I have a great deal of affection uh, and respect for the Philippine people who are enormously cheerful about not the greatest way of life that the economy obliges them to have. And of course, under the current president, it has become a very autocratic um, situation. And uh, I hope things improve in the Philippines. Um, anyway, that's off topic, but um, they're great people. And Danny Boom Boom Domingues with and Carding and uh, Toto Castillo and all those great guys who were my heads of department, top professionals. I was grateful for their support. You stated on the making of the Siege of Firebase Glory, you wanted to make a movie about war and reconciliation, but you had creative interference with the studio. Could you discuss this? Yeah, I mean, I thought the point of the film is not just about a piece of ground getting pounded and lots of people dying, but there has to be a, a more uplifting point, perhaps, that wars can end and people can forgive and forget their differences. I mean, Britain and Germany have certainly buried the hatchet. Uh, United States and Japan have done the same. So the original script had an aspect that really appealed to me. It started with Vietnamese boat people landing in the mid-70s, actually you know, late-70s in Manila and being processed at the Refugee Processing Center. And there's this grizzled American, probably no, no doubt a former veteran, who 
had stayed in the Philippines, as Leomi himself did after his Vietnam tour. And our character joined the refugee processing center, and he looks at this crowd of refugees we've seen on board a rickety boat and then waiting on the quayside, and he looks and he sees a familiar face. And there is a man you know, wearing some gray in his hair and a 15-year-old boy beside him holding a flute, a wooden sort of bamboo flute. And I know that face, I know that face. And then the film you currently see plays as a flashback to his experience in Vietnam when at the climactic battle he locks in hand-to-hand combat with this North Vietnamese army colonel. And in the course of their struggle, he cuts the man's face with a bayonet. And that indeed, that man's face has a scar on it. So when we come back to present day, when we've seen how that character lost all his friends and his best buddy played by Wingshauser ultimately had to euthanize him because he knew what it would be like to go back as a maimed, crippled form that if he even survived the wound. So that was pretty traumatic. So how does he feel about his former enemy? He walks through the crowd towards this guy who's sitting there at the back. And the 15-year-old, we now realize, is the child that was rescued in the course of the battle, rescued by the Americans at the beginning of the film and ultimately taken back by the Vietnamese at the end of the film and the symbol, in fact, for the country of Vietnam. As he walks forward to this guy, who looks a little apprehensive because he recognized the man who cut him with a bayonet, anyway, he stands in front of him and then extends his hand and says in Vietnamese, welcome. So that was war and reconciliation, and that was the story that the heart that underpinned the battle movie uh, But the distributor thought that that was unpatriotic. There was too much emphasis. As one of the producers told me that the sales team had said, too much emphasis on the gooks. So that was how they took it. And, you know, it needed to be more about patriotic Americans defeating the attacking horde. And uh, I was in the process of re-recording sound. Our sound was not very good, and we had to, with a lot of external noises interfering with it, motorbikes and nearby paddy fields and things like that, that we just couldn't stop them doing that. So we had to re-record a certain amount of exterior dialogue, and I was in the process of doing that. And suddenly the flashback, well, became the whole movie, and the bookends with the refugees were cut. And a, a title was to be put up, that the one that starts the, the film. So how was I to try and get some of my message across without these specific scenes. And so I wrote new narration for Lee Ermey's character. He had certain bits of narration anyway, but I wrote more and laid it into the cut as it stood. I couldn't change the cut then, but I I found places where we could lay more commentary in. So that helps a bit. And some people say, well, that's all you really needed to do in the first place. But I liked my bookends, but they are never to be seen. Going to some of your other films, you stated Stunt Rock was your love letter to Stuntman. But looking at your movies, The Stuntman and Kung Fu Killers, Death Cheaters, you have a fascination with stunt work. And what was your favorite stunt that you've ever directed in a movie? Uh, one thing about stunts is one of your concerns all the time is 
can something go wrong? Will someone be injured or killed? So obviously there's a degree of apprehension and anticipation before we shoot the stunt, or right up to the point where it, it takes place. A great deal of relief when it is over and, and no one has been hurt. I wanted to do movies that had stunts where you could actually see the character do the stunt himself. And that's one of the reasons that I thought Grant Page was such a valuable asset. And I created vehicles for him in which he could be seen to be doing his own stunts. But many stunts have certainly, on, on their conclusion, filled me with exhilaration. I mean, the catapult stunt in the beginning of Stunt Rock, where he's fired like a, an arrow out off the top of this cliff and still hangs on to the rope despite the sudden stop when, let's say, the bowstring has uh, been totally released. Uh, obviously, there was a trick to that. We, he had a little body harness and had carabiners in his palms that were clipped onto the bowstring. So even if, if, if his hands had... There was no way he would be disconnected from that rope uh, and fall onto the rocks below or into the sea. So we judged the theory was correct, and indeed it turned out to be so. And there was a great whooping and hollering by all concerned around the cliff, including myself, and it worked out. I would say that about any fire stunt, any car crash stunt. Uh, I mean, the car crash, the stunt at the end of Dead End Drive-In, uh, where the two-ton truck goes up the ramp of an empty car transporter, flies through the neon sign of the star drive-in, flies 162 feet, we measured it, to land on the other side. That was a world record. I believe it was a world record. I think it was registered at the time for the longest distance a truck of that weight could ever fly off a ramp. You know, when that worked absolutely perfectly in its narrow window of opportunity, it had to take place just at dawn, just as the sun was providing just as modicum of light because all the previous car chase had happened around the drive-in at night. But this big stunt needed you know, just a bit more light because we were going to be using high-speed cameras and they required more light. So it was logical that we could tune the night photography so that it was all, it seemed to just get the early rays of dawn. But in order to prepare the stunt properly and not have to prepare it in darkness waiting for the dawn, we prepared it by day waiting for sunset. And then that narrow two minutes of opportunity where the light was perfectly representational of dawn as well as sunset, the light was right. We fitted into that two-minute window before it would change and obviously reveal, it will obviously become too dark for the high-speed cameras to really do their best. So you could say that was a nail-biter. We hoped, we had the theory about the stunt, about how Guy Norris, who drove the vehicle and designed the stunt, how he would not be hurt. He was in a special suspended harness that would prevent his spine getting terrible impact once the car hit the ground after you know, flying through the air. All the theory had been worked out, but it had never been done before. So, And it had to be done in that narrow window of time. And if you know what it's like to organize 50 people who have individual functions that all play a part in, in a shot, there are always these last-minute tweaks. So as it turned out, yeah, we shot it perfectly within that narrow two minutes and uh, it looks great. So I suppose 
you could say that that would be one of the stunts that uh, you know was a most memorable experience for me. I just read your novel, Alice Through the Multiverse, and it's a page-turner. Could you discuss the origin of the book and why you decided to write it? Ah, well, thank you for reading it. My goodness, you got to the end. Yes, I did. What did you think of the end? I enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed what you did. Hmm. Well, alternative history, you see. Yeah. And what would the United States be if the War of 1812 had turned out differently. So that seemed to be a logical way to end the book and possibly be a platform for further adventures of Alice. But I was initially motivated to write a screenplay, which I called The Executioner's Daughter, in which virtually everything that you see in in, in the book sort of happens. But there was no butterfly effect consequence to the, the changes that were made in history. My tiny microscopic changes that could produce a butterfly effect and change subsequent history. But I hadn't gone that far in the screenplay. I just dealt with the parallel conspiracies in two time periods and how our plucky heroine manages to overcome, defeat the bad guys. So I wrote it as a screenplay. It was optioned initially for good money, uh, but no one was able ultimately to fund it because it, the principal character really was a young girl. And unless you got a big star young girl, if you got Kira Knightley or uh, Scarlett Johansson and, or in 2008, then those names could produce, might cause people to invest or a studio to guarantee distribution that would get investors to come on board. Uh, so eventually the rights returned to me and it was just something about the story that kept sort of gnawing at my liver, and I, I just had to get it out. So I, I novelized it, and then I revised the novel uh, because I thought of this new ending. And I was never satisfied with the way that Alice ultimately perished, and I didn't feel that our readers you know, wanted that. Uh, so I found a way very easily in which she would evade death and go on to live a happy life, and her descendant, one of her descendants, would, who would not otherwise have been born, provided the turning of the tide in a key battle in the War of 1812 with the result that the world ultimately changed. So that was the evolution of the book. And I'm glad you feel it's a page-turner. And I'm glad, you know, I see a lot of women will actually enjoy this book, particularly those that, that like paranormal stories. But even as a sort of middle-aged, well, old-aged <laughs> man, uh, writing about a teenage girl and trying to you know, understand her thoughts. I hope uh, that uh, I've struck a chord there somewhere with my female readership, but my male readership would no doubt enjoy the action and the twists and turns. And I hope some people enjoy some of the ironic comments that I make. Um, obviously, I'm writing from you know a progressive politically progressive standpoint. The bad guys you know, naturally represent, shall we, shall we say, unregulated capitalism. Uh, and uh, so there's, you know, there's political subtext, which of course may offend some people, but it's meant to be a ripping yarn mostly, and it may have a few thoughts in it worth considering. I would like to thank 
Brian Trenchard-Smith for granting us the interview. Please come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium to see The Siege at Firebase Gloria on Saturday, September 14, 2019 at 2 p.m. The Siege at Firebase Gloria is rated R. Today's music is Sky High by Jigsaw. (laughs) 